0: Hey folks, thanks for tuning in again or for the first time to my silly little podcast, A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole, where I ferret through my vinyl collection of about 500 records and my tiny brain of about 500 remaining brain cells and take a light-hearted, positive, fanboys look at my favourite songs and bits of songs and artists that fall within a different, pointless, set theme every episode, and I sometimes highlight some rock and roll bed shits just for some fun. It's really just an attempt to archive some stories, old YouTube interviews and some great songs for like-minded rock music fans. Choosing from any song part or artist that has given me joy as a listener or a slight Norwegian wood as a musician. It's not a countdown, but I will leave my favourite choice for last. This is just a bit of laid-back, unnecessary fun that hopefully inspires someone to support a musician by buying some music or some merch, or listen to an old favourite album and check out all this amazing shit that I adore which has formed the soundtrack of my life. A lot of people do like to share their opinions these days. Please let me know if you think if I have missed anything in my record collection that I know and that I like by sending me an email at this is not a real email address at gofecky That's cock spelt with two K's, and I'll get back to you as soon as I give a shit. But seriously, if you do want to say hi, you can hit me up and follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook. A Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole Podcast or via the website arockandrollrabbithole.com That's com spelt with a c The website also has Spotify playlists of all of the songs used in each episode past episodes as well and some other golden magic and I also have some small playlists of the great lesser known artists that I like to highlight at the end of each episode on the Victims tab of the website Please rate, review, subscribe and share the podcast if you are digging it, that's super helpful and genuinely appreciated. Thanks again, apologies in advance and here goes. Hey folks, as always, thanks for listening or if it's for your first time, thanks for checking out the podcast. And I do hope that last week's episode proved that some drummers do contribute to music. I'm joking, drummers. Everyone knows you don't contribute at all. And if you did miss part one of Instant Drums last week, I was rabbit hole digging on songs with drum intros that I recognise before a real instrument has been played or a note has been sung. You get the picture? And here's what we got through last week. Recapping the magic
1: On Australia's biggest park and sale, we're offering a BMW
0: valued at. 40... So I'll start part two off with a piece of music. It's not necessarily a song, but it has a very famous drum intro. You probably won't need to hear the music after it to know what it is, but I'll give you a couple of goes. Here we go. And in case you're Amish or from Chess Hunt, here it is again. Here's a drum intro song that most of you will get straight away.
2: How do you
3: write a song? How do you write a song? How do I write a song? Well, if I sat here and played some chords, whatever, and say, I'm going to write the best song ever written, nothing happens. Something in the heavens has to say, look, this is the time that this is going to be laid on you, and this is when I want you to have it. Now, I remember when I when I wrote Billie Jean, I was riding in my uh, car down Ventura Boulevard. All I said to myself beforehand, I want to write a song with a great bass hook, you know, and... Um, um, and I just let it go, really. And then several days later, you know, you know the Where whole. Where did thing, that ooh, come ooh,
4: from? Ooh.
3: From above.
0: So really okay, did. okay you, so you you were singing the bass line. Sing that again, and then what happened? How did you get the other instrumentation and the composition? How did it work? It it, it See, the thing
3: is, in um, artists seem to get in the way of the music. Get out of the way of the music. You know, don't write the music. Let the music write itself.
0: Was Michael Jackson's biggest selling solo single of his career, and the Thriller album was the biggest selling album of all time, selling about 70 million copies, including 34 million in the US alone. It reminds me of an incident that happened that nearly got me fired from a job when I was a teenager working in a record shop, when a lady customer asked me where she could find the Michael Jackson records. I think I said something like, look under J in the male artist section, but if you can't see any there, occasionally Michael Jackson can be known to sneak into the kids section. Bitch did not find that funny at all. Anyway, moving on to an artist that most probably didn't diddle with kids. Let's see if you can pick this drum intro, which still sounds so good. It was recorded in 1979. I'll give you a couple of listens. we've heard in previous episodes and one of them kind of doesn't count because it starts with a cowbell but I'm going to pop it in anyway. Cowbells, then drums here's another great drum and cowbell tune that we did here in the cowbells from hell episode and it's liar by queen for Paul Webb's name in W.A.? Although this one's the shortest drum intro ever, I can still pick it from the one snare.
1: Very much. So, that was a song called "From Me to You." Good evening. How are you? All right. Oh, good. We'd like to carry on with a new song. Uh, she loves you. One,
4: two.
0: Billie Jean before by Michael Jackson and the reverb on the snare kind of dates it as an 80s song and here's two other songs from the 80s with very similar drum intros that one's not too tricky to guess here it is again
5: John was born 30 years ago in Seymour, Indiana, and he still lives nearby in the college town of Bloomington. When he was a teenager, John played in a few local bands, and in college he majored in broadcasting. After graduation, got a job at a radio station. But the job was in sales, and John didn't stay interested very long. In the early 70s, John started recording demo tapes, and he sent them around to managers. One of the managers was Tony DeFreeze, who handled David Bowie. And it was Tony who signed John. Now, at the time, John Cougar was using his real name, John Mellencamp. And Tony told him he'd have to change it. It was like getting a haircut. You know, it was like, uh, if you want this job,
6: you gotta get your haircut. You remember how that went in the 60s for guys? It was the same way. If you want this job, John, you gotta change your name because we can't sell a guy his name, John Mellencamp. Just
5: doesn't roll off the tongue or something. He says, I made up the name David Bowie and it worked for him. His name was David Jones, right? And John Cougar will work for you. John recorded one album, Chestnut Street Incident, and then broke off his association with Tony DeFreeze. Signed with a new manager, Billy Gaff, and with a new record company. And he started hitting the charts with songs like I Need a Lover, This Time Ain't Even Done With a Night. And the song that's become his biggest hit so far, a song that's now at number two on the pop chart. Hurt so good.
0: And I've always confused the drum intro on Hurts So Good with a song from 1980 called So Long by a British band called Fisher Z. And here's Hurts So Good first. And here's the drum intro for the super sad So Long by Fisher Z. Before we move on from Billie Jean, every so often YouTube gives me some absolute magic. And here's a version of Michael Jackson's Billie Jean. But every time Michael makes a weird noise with his mouth, the tempo and pitch of the song jump up. (laughs) A few weeks ago, we heard Rock and Roll High School by the Ramones. show on Rock and Roll High School kind of reminds me of Norway's national anthem.
7: on this Greek island and I met this girl named Anna and uh, I I, I completely fell in love with her and and I think vice versa which is a a dumb thing to do in the middle of the summer on a Greek island because the girl's from Australia and you're from California. There was this period where I got really, really sick of playing music and I uh, I I saved up some money from landscaping and I I bought a backpack and some some boots and uh, me and a friend got tickets and went over to Europe just to backpack around Europe. It was like the summer of 1989. I ended up on this Greek island and I met this girl named Anna. And uh, I, I, I completely fell in love with her and, and I think vice versa. Which is a, a dumb thing to do in the middle of the summer on a Greek island because the girl's from Australia and you're from California. And the last thing, you should have a fling, you know, that the last thing you need to do is fall in love with the girl from Australia because you've got, you don't have years, you have weeks, you know, and then everyone goes home and you know we were kids and the plane tickets are too expensive you can't change these things you know and uh, it was just really difficult because nobody wants to really cop to how important they feel about it because it just it's a, it's, a, it's a it's a hole that you're going to fall into you know and so the the song is really about um, denial you know the the characters in the song keep saying to each other no you know i'm not ready for this sort of thing until the very end, when when it's too late, and they realize that what they really weren't ready for is the loss, and uh, it's a terrible thing to find out because it's it's uh, it's too late, which is which is what it ended up being at that point, and it's it's uh, it's funny. She's she's married now, and uh, she's got a kid, and she's she still lives in Sydney, and we still talk every once in a while, not too much, but. Uh, and whenever I talk to her, she still tells me that she loves this song. And I do too. This is a uh, this is Anna Begins.
0: guessing game, see if you can get this one, and here it is again. drum intro was painkiller by judas priest suggested by scott hughes
2: by and someone came out and Joe Jackson heard like that much of motor breath and said what the hell is that
8: how did they get in here
2: <laughs> oh, man.
7: somebody
9: else don't we have a disinfectant for that don't pick another one
0: Back in episode 19 we heard a band called The Gamma Center and the band put out a self-titled album that I've been digging this year and the last track on the record called 50 Second Mark has a cool drum intro. And you can check out the Victims tab on the website rabbithole.com, for more of their music. drum sound on this next one and it's not your traditional well mic'd up kit but it still sounds great to me and it's a super recognizable drum intro
10: Cross the
9: It's hard to to imagine what Ireland was like when my mother and father got married. Um, my father was a Catholic, my mother was a Protestant, big deal you might say, but it, it, it was a very big deal in those days. The country was being torn apart along sectarian lines. Uh, my father's family didn't show up at the wedding um, in our house. There was changes made to, so as not to, you know, not to bring up, you know, um, (laughs) um, sore subjects, you know. Although all I remember is arguing about religion as we grew up. But my father and my mother really tried to preserve us from it. And I remember driving uh, across the border. And my father saying, "This is a border. That, you know, it, um, England claims this. This is our country, um, but England claims it. And they, under threat of war, they forced us to to to, to, to cut off a piece of our country." And I said to me, I, so, "So you're a republican? You know, you support the sort of the IRA, and you support the the armed struggle to return." wholeness to the country and he said no 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 no, he said, oh, no 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 he said no no i i'm just telling you what i think he said is it worth fighting for with and, and taking lives no 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 and he he quoted um, i think it was saying maybe it was saying what is ireland but a place that keeps my feet from getting wet and so my father had a very suspicious view of paramilitaries and people fighting for freedom, and uh, cynical about them. The way to say John Lennon, I think, got in times is like. Uh, uh, so I grew up with that, um, but when we wrote Sunday Bloody Sunday, I just tried as as a, as a lyricist, and it's, it's not much of a lyric really, but it's. It has one original thought, which is that it contrasts Easter Sunday, which was uh, the, the rising in Ireland. It's 100 years, actually, in 2016. It's 100 years since 1916 when Ireland rose up at Easter in revolt against Britain. And it contrasts Sunday, Bloody Sunday, which was a... A massacre that happened um, in Derry uh, in the early 70s where British um, uh, paratroopers opened fire on a peaceful protest. It contrasts these events with um, the resurrection and and that was that was a bit of a trip i think I think that was audacious at the very least to do that, and it has this martial beat you know um, and the, the great irony was that when our album War came out, a lot of people on the, on the Republican side, you know, on the, uh, were, like Jerry Adams who ran Sinn Fein, which was the political wing of, of the paramilitaries, had a picture of, of war <laughs> in his office. And they looked at this song, Sunday Bloody Sunday, which is reminding everyone of the injustice the British did to us. And then he found out it was, you know, that we're non-violent <laughs> and we were, we were taking a very different approach. Uh, things changed for us a little bit with that community. Indeed, we then campaigned in the United States against NORAID, uh, NORAID was an organization that raised money in the United States to send home to buy guns and bombs. And there was a very romantic view in America at the time of the Irish freedom fighters. We have to support them, and then not realizing we're blowing up kids in supermarkets, and you know, and so, so you, you, that song, as I say, was very misunderstood, um, and then it, it had me, and had some live show that we put out called Under Red Sky, declaring it is not a rebel song. This is not a rebel song, which is, which was uh, quite rebellious. So, so Sunday, the song's taken on a completely new found meaning on the Innocence and Experience tour. Sing it from this other place, take away the, the, the kind of rock and roll approach, it's more acoustic.
4: Um,
9: and it, it, it seems to mean more now that we have peace. It reminds people, and we used images on the tour to remind people of where, where this song came from. But it reminds people that I hope by us playing it that that uh, the division is never physical, like a border. Real borders are in people's hearts, the way we see each other, and and I think that's that can be applied to um, to all kinds of situations. In fact, I've rewritten the lyric a few times. If you can find it, there's a I did a version of it in, in the Hollywood bow with Edge, um, which was applied to what's going on in, um, in the Middle East and the troubles there in Israel and Palestine and the like. So.
7: That's a few lighters there, a few hundred, a few thousand, maybe. You know why we're doing this, don't you?
11: I say, do you know why?
7: It's because it's power ballad time. Hands up, who likes a power ballad occasionally? Can I get an I do?
1: This one is called Love is Only a Feeling.
0: next drum intro song is by living color and it's called mind your own business and i've never heard a song mess with the timing and tempo so much so wacky and cool check it out here People will know the next one, as it's a bit off the beaten track. But I hear it once a week in one of my must-listen comedy podcasts, Is We Dumb, for their piss-funny reviews of people's piss-funny online reviews. Three out of five stars wouldn't change a thing.
6: Side 2 opens with uh, a song that I think has been a favourite certainly of Billy Joel fans for a long, long time, originally on the Turnstiles album. And ironically, it was to be later recorded by Ronnie Spector and Southside Johnny and the Jukes backing her up. And I say ironically because um, it was obvious that you were basing certainly the drum sound on the old Phil Spector drum sound. How's that song work live? That song always worked pretty well live. Uh, we used to do it as an encore song. Um, we still do it uh, from time to time. That's the uh, big smash bash, uh, right? Phil Spector drum sound with the echo and the. Uh, I was thinking of the Ronettes when I wrote the song, and Ronnie Spector was the lead singer in the Ronettes. And her husband at the time, Phil Spector, was the producer, and he had that wall of sound thing. Um, and in writing a song about singing about Hollywood, I wanted to write it like a party song, um, which is what I had in Hollywood. It's one big party. And uh, we. The. Uh recording that we ended up with came from uh, Milwaukee, I think, in Milwaukee arena. It's kind of an old arena, and this is one of those places that's close to the boom-boom rooms I was talking about before. It does have a fairly good amount of echo and what we call wash in it, but it was perfect for that song. And again, Milwaukee was one of those towns where we had kind of a, what they call a cult following. Although I hate to use the word cult because it sounds like people wearing robes with horns and lighting incense and killing babies or something. But we had a pretty good following in Milwaukee, which is right near Chicago. And um, we were better known in Milwaukee, I think, at the time than we were in Chicago during the Turnstiles album. And uh, it just, that uh, particular version of it jumped out. I wasn't really happy with the way the Turnstiles uh, record was. It was a little bit dead, a little bit dull. And this has a lot of life in it.
0: Just now, listening to Say Goodbye to Hollywood's drums with the crowd, reminds me of another U2 song off my favourite live album of all time, Under a Blood Red Sky, live at Red Rocks. And here's the intro to Say Goodbye to Hollywood again, and then the drum intro for Gloria. of the 70s and 80s live records. I'm pretty sure the crowd noises are overdubbed. Not sure. Call in if you know.
1: Once we'd finished Argentina and Brazil, the band decided to go back into the studio. And they had, of course, bought the studios in Montreux here.
7: Mountain Studios was in the casino...
1: By the lake in Montreux. When they first arrived, it was like the top studio
9: in Europe. We're in this studio in Montreux, and David Bowie lives nearby. I think we went out for a meal or some drinks or something and then landed up back in the studio with the sort of rough intention of doing something.
12: We were falling
1: around and, and just sort of um jamming with, with, with tracks, and suddenly we said, why don't we just um see what we can do on the spur of the moment. Then, you know, there's the pressure of His Majesty David being there
13: and everybody
1: wanted to look uh, suave and, uh, you know, quick with ideas and stuff. Diki, of course, came up with this riff. Ding, 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 ding. He kept playing that over and over and over again. And then we went for a pizza and he forgot it completely escaped his mind and got back and i remembered it and of course we're used to playing together and now we have this other guy there who's also inputting inputting inputting. david's idea to put all these clicks and claps and then it just the sort
9: of track grew and by that time david was very impassioned with it and he had a vision in his head i think you know it's quite a difficult process and somebody has to back off and actually
1: I did back off which is unusual for me. For the vocals, one of them was be locked out and they are not allowed to hear what the other one sang and they just sort of sang anything off the top of their head. Fred starts doing his bum da 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 and you know his bits and pieces and I see out of the corner of my eye I see David sticking his head in listening. Then Fred came down, David went up, and Freddie was quite impressed that he was counterpointing to what he did before. And Fred said, you know, what you make of this? And I said, well, it's kind of easy if you stand in the doorway and listening to what you're doing. And then just Fred said, what, the, you know? The result is very good. But it was a difficult experience, I think. These people were sort of pr- pulling in different directions, in a sense. Under pressure. Under pressure, David Bowie, the band, me. Uh, I don't think it mixed too well.
4: Russia. Shame,
1: actually. Uh, I, I thought it was, it was fabulous. We could have done some incredible further things, actually.
0: So a single opening hi-hat opens up under pressure. song with some hi-hats to start off is one of my favourite ACDC songs and one of their only ballads, Right On. of Queen songs in this episode and the other Queen band also has a great drum fill into one of their songs. two songs from the 70s that have great drum intros.
14: Slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, stand. You don't need to be coy, Roy. You just listen to me. Hop on the bus, Gus. You don't need to discuss much. Just drop off the key, Lee, and get yourself free.
10: And for a pick of the board, possible $25, who am I?
0: Shit, that's a quick one. But I was released in 1967 and also covered in 1970. The 1970 version went to number one in the US and won a Grammy for Diana Ross. I was pretty much ripped off Note for Note by Amy Winehouse on her song Tears Dry on Their Own. And here I am with the first bass note that might help. And the two hit drum intro we're hearing are from the Marvin Gaye Tammy Terrell version. was that that one was super shit all right let's move on this next one should be an easy get if you're alive in the 90s how'd you go here it is again Part one last week, we covered a few great drum intros from one of my favourite Aussie drummers, Ross from Body Jar. Here's a couple of great recognisable drum intros from another favourite Aussie drummer of mine, Rob Hurst from Midnight Oil, with Sleep and then Best of Both Worlds.
8: magazine bizarre yes. enough they've asked me to ask you because they're doing a 20th year anniversary of nirvana's nevermind ah and they wanted to know what you think of the album and did it change your
2: life when you heard it has it been that long yeah uh yeah that was definitely one of the formative uh uh, experiences for me, listening to Nirvana, Nirvana for the first time. I'm proud to say I was there before Nevermind. <laughs> I was there for Bleach. Old school. Uh, yeah, someone turned me on to that album, and I was just like, who are these guys that are changing music? Yeah, th- that was one of the times when it was like, I had never heard anything like it before, and it was so compelling. It must've been similar to what it was like when people first heard Led Zeppelin or The mm-hmm. Beatles, you know? But, um, I remember seeing them live in San Francisco. I don't remember the date, but I remember it was the night that Bill Graham had died. Oh, wow. It's like- and they were so fucking good. And the thing that was amazing about them was not just them. They were compelling and in- incredibly charismatic, hmm. but also the crowd. The crowd was in a trance, just undulating mass of pleasure. And everyone knew that, that uh, this was a moment, that mm. they were witnessing, you know, a historical uh, musical experience. And ever since then, I know that it's, it's the crowd that's just as important as, as the band yeah. in making a show incredible. Because as good as Nirvana was, if they were in front of a bunch of stiffs, that show wouldn't yeah. have been so great. Yeah. Takes two to tango.
8: <laughs>
2: cool. Thank you so much. All right. I got that one in.
8: Have you seen the website, the conspiracy website that, that says that Kurt Cobain did not kill himself and that it's actually you are Kurt Cobain? Have you seen that?
15: Yeah, I've heard of that. Was, I hadn't seen the website before. And then just, just yesterday, somebody forwarded it to me. Is that like suddenly going around for some reason? It's, I know that conspiracy has been around for a long time.
8: I don't know I just saw it. I just thought the other day and thought hmm interesting and I thought might even be interesting if I were to ask you questions as if it were true because that could be fun for both of us Yeah So if if you were Kurt tell me how you imagine
15: you would have transformed yourself into rivers Well first of all I'd have to stage my death which seems seems easy enough and then yeah the blue album came out a month later after he died. You could have been more you could have been working on that like for years. Yeah, and I know he was he seemed to be very interested in very uh, like innocent naive music like they they covered uh the raincoats which is not that different from Weezer I guess. Um you know major key and we kind of picked up picked up that ball and r- ran with it. So yeah, I think kind of run in the opposite direction from grunge and, you know, wear, wear the button-down shirts and cut your hair short and, uh, and sing with a very pure voice rather than a rock voice.
8: Yeah, it seems like that would be a nice... Um, if you, like, if you were tired of being Kurt Cobain, this might be a nice career decision, like get away from all that madness, essentially cancel the past, and start anew with no none of the old pressure of being in this uh, the, a band that changed the world, and um, where you could just have fun and write pop songs and enjoy yourself.
15: Yeah, I guess the grass is always greener, but um, yeah, and I, I think for for everyone outside of Nirvana, it seemed like he had it pretty good. Like that's what we all wanted, right? We we want to be not only the band that's selling. 10 gazillion records, but like the band that everyone knows, like they've revolutionized music and culture, you know, they're they're always going to be that band. And the rest of us, we're just like little, little dwarfs kind of dancing around their, their heels.
8: But it looks like it felt bad enough for him to either end his life or decide to become you
15: one of the two. (laughs) Which is better.
0: So that was Rick Rubin talking to Rivers Cuomo from Weezer and here's a Weezer song that has five potential trigger words in the first verse. Girls, Japanese, God, cello, redhead and a soundcheck vibe drum intro, El Scorcho.
15: I'm the epitome, a public enemy.
11: Why you want to go and do me like that? Come down on the street and dance with me. Ah.
7: It, that. it was about Rosanna Arquette, but you wrote it about.
8: It was about another girl. It was my first first love. Well, Steve but she,
7: was dating Rosanna at the she, time. Yes,
8: and all of a sudden she came in. And I think everybody and that was anybody who met her had a crush on her, and I was no different when she walked in. She, really she was cute. She was cute. She was gorgeous, and I just needed a title. Meet you all the way. And there was, I met her and I remember just adding her name to the song. Yeah.
9: you got to come to me if you want the real <laughs> truth. I love it.
8: Rosanna hit all of, we all met her at the same time, especially David and I. I met her at James Newton wedding and was very much enamored with her and she was in a relationship. And about a year after that, she was free of the relationship and we started hanging out. She started coming over to David's house. And we weren't, you know what I mean, it wasn't yeah. preordained that she, you know, that we were going to be together. She just was around in mutual friends, James Howard and his wife at the time. And uh, and I think everybody was a little enamored with her. You know oh, what I yeah. mean? Yeah. And I think well, it inspired. I mean,
7: Peter Gabriel wrote In
12: Your Eyes about her. her.
8: Long line of Rosanna's <laughs> been kind of a zealot in that. You know what I mean? Right. With a lot of stuff. You know what I mean? Outside of Patty Boyd, maybe the most yeah.
7: written about uh, female <laughs> in, in pop. He totally wrote it about it. You know what I
8: mean? Like you I wrote about it. a girl that you, see, you know what I mean, that you first <laughs> right, meet and right. that leaves an impression on you. Putting
1: those two beats together, I came up with my own little kind of hybrid. For Rosanna, I added the Bo Diddley figure. It's a shuffle Bo Diddley figure, basically. And putting them together, this is what it came up with.
10: We didn't rehearse. No. We never rehearsed our stuff. Yeah. Dave, what do you got? Dave yeah. Had, we heard him playing in the song. And and then Jeff goes, well, I mean, he, Jeff had been listening to
8: Let's Up and Fool on the Hill. That and Bernard Purdy's Babylon System. Yeah. So Let's he sort of did his version of that. I had been listening to, to Panic that. in Detroit with Bowie, so I wanted this. Jeff just took one look, he didn't even play that. He tried about one bar of it and said, no. He goes, let me tell you, this is how this needs to be.
0: three rock and drum intro songs from the debut Arctic Monkeys album. Whatever people say I am, that's what I'm not. And I will play them in reverse alphabetical order of the last letter of the last word of each song. finish up I guess I gotta pop this one in. So before I get to my favourite drum intro song, I like to add a story when I can about one of the songs or one of the artists in the episode. And this story is about the Beatles and Michael Jackson. Nothing to do with kids.
16: Story to me though, business wise, just to, and and I want to get to the new single and all that. I know that's what we're here to talk about, but the fact of the matter is, you were the guy who said to Michael Jackson, You should get into publishing, isn't that great? Yeah, don't and, you love the irony? And he bought all your songs, yeah. And you've said to him, Listen, I'll give you fair market value, let me buy my songs, I want to own them, mm. and he won't do it. No. And
17: now that he has scumbag. sort of um,
16: yeah. scumbag, he's yeah. sort of using no. them as
3: leverage mm. for his own
16: financial problems.
1: You know, it's a funny thing. We had a, quite a good little relationship. He rang me up on Christmas Day, I think it was, and I heard this. Uh, Hello? <laughs> He's very weird. Yeah. I said hello. This so I thought. Uh oh! Wait a minute. This American fans got my uh, <laughs> uh, home phone number. Right. Said, this is where I said hello. yes. Uh, no, you he's not. He's not here. Yeah. Uh, so oh, I, I so Anyway, he came over. He, I said, What do you want to do? He said, Make some hits. I said, Well, that sounds good. So we we got a little relationship there. It was quite good fun, and it is true. He did ask me. He said, You know, you got some advice, Paul yeah. I told him. Took him aside and said, Doodle, 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 and think about getting into music publishing. And I thought he was joking. He said, Oh, I'm. Gonna I'm. I'm gonna get yours. (laughs) <laughs> well, I went. Oh, <laughs> he slapped sure him you on are. the back. Uh, Good one, you know. I thought that was a joke, and then I just got wrong. He said he's got yours, uh, and I thought, hey, you know what is weird? I don't mind that because he, you know, had business, all the yeah. cash. Someone was selling it, and he bought it. What I don't like is that I've actually written to him a couple of times, were dishing the dirt. How'd you got me at it? Go ahead. Yes, I don't normally. You try wrote him and a couple this. of letters. I wrote him a couple of letters saying, Michael, don't you think after like, even if I was just a writer on the payroll after thirty years. Right of being reasonably successful for this company you now own, don't you think I could have a raise? Yeah. And uh, you know, he said, oh, well, that's just business. I said, yeah. Yeah. And we've never talked about it. He won't even answer my letters. Oh, my So you God. know what? If we haven't got that great a relationship. Not anymore, oh, no huh? That pisses but me off. But I did read me.
17: recently, I met, him, I met him
16: once, and I thought he was the oddest human being I ever met.
17: But I did read recently that
3: because of some uh, cash flow problems mm-hmm. he's having, yeah. aren't your songs up
16: uh, for grabs? In like, fact, this uh, might be a good time for me and you to go in and buy these songs. <laughs> <laughs>
1: I'm in. Yeah, yeah, You know, so no, many I good think it of may be true. Them, I yeah. I don't know. You know, you never know what's room and what isn't. I I don't have access to his accounts, but mm. um, uh, you know, I if, do. That may be true. I know you do. <laughs> yeah, I have access I mean, to everyone's you, accounts. We could go and buy them. But you know, the trouble is, I wrote them for nothing right and buying them back at these phenomenal songs is just it I, rubs you the wrong I way can't oh, do it man. should to paul mccartney the former Beatle, has mounted a legal battle to get back rights to some of the songs he co-wrote and wrote with john lennon and our editor at large craig peters was uh I, don't, I wouldn't call it dancing, but you were certainly uh, nodding your head and tapping your feet to those old tunes.
16: Rock and roll, baby. <laughs>
1: <laughs> tell me, um, Craig, just to go back in time for a little bit and tell me how did the Beatles lose control of their own music in the first place?
16: Well, prior to the Beatles, no one really cared about who owned the catalogs because studio musicians came in and played songs that the producers told them to do. Then came the Beatles, who had a very smart manager by the name of Brian Epstein, and he controlled everything and did it very well. He died in 1967 at the age of 32 years old, and the Beatles started to devolve at that time. Uh, They were going bankrupt. In 1969, the Beatles formed something called Apple Corp, Apple, the real Apple, the first Apple, and that was going down the tube. so, on Mick Jagger's um, advice, they hired a New York manager called Alan Klein, who uh, was pretty much a swindler. And um, everything kind of went downhill from there. And whatever peace, love, and brown rice was left with the Beatles devolved into uh, chaos, loathing, and lawsuits that ended with uh, uh, Michael Jackson a number of years ago selling a f- his 50% share share in the Lennon-McCartney catalog to Sony for some $750 million, and it's just been a nightmare. The Beatles' legal battle, Paul McCartney filing a new lawsuit against Sony Music for ownership rights to
8: some of the Beatles' most treasured songs, and Sonny, you're here okay. to discuss this, and when we say treasured, treasured songs, we mean, I want to hold your hand, oh, so let love you know. me
16: do, yes. all you need is love. The
17: ones that we love so much, and he co-wrote a lot of those songs mm-hmm. with John Lennon in between 1962 and 1971, but guess what he did? He transferred his rights to those songs to other parties, and a lot of young artists do that because they don't have a lot of bargaining power. Well, he wants those songs back. He wants the rights to those songs back, so he's suing Sony Music for for his rights, and under this 1976 copyright law, he may very well get some of those songs back because the law says after 56 years, which is a long time, you can get those, those songs back because I think it's trying to help artists who get... Give these these rights away and what's interesting about it is 56 years october 5th wow. 9th, uh, 2018 his, his I, time i can't, may I have can't come. believe
15: it's been that that, been that yes. long but you know sony has released a statement and mm-hmm. says in part we are disappointed that they have filed this lawsuit which we believe is both unnecessary and premature so does paul McCartney have a case here
17: i think i think he could he very well could and, and think about it this is millions of dollars maybe even billions of dollars so we'll see
0: So in 2017, Paul McCartney got the rights back to most of his Beatles songs.
3: Thank
0: you, Michael. So for my favourite drum intro song, I'm going to go with a jellyfish song off Spilt Milk, and the song is called New Mistake. i definitely check out that album if you haven't heard it. I love every song on it. i mm-hmm. Thanks again for listening. And thanks to James Gorbitz and Turtle for some positive vibes this week. And you can check out all the past episodes on the website, arockandrolrabbithole.com. Follow the podcast on Instagram and Facebook, a Rock and Roll Rabbit Hole podcast. And on the website, I also have a Spotify playlist for all the songs played in each episode. If you got a spare second, flip me a review or a rating, that'd be helpful. Thank you. So at the end of each episode, I like to add a lesser known artist that qualifies for the week's topic. And this week I'm going to go with a band that I've used a few times and their record Lucky Star was one of the albums that I listened to a whole heap last year to get through the lockdown. And they proved that not only drummers can be useful, they can also be left-handed. And you can check out this great band on the Victims tab of the website and this is What Have We Learned by Doc Halibut. Thanks again, guys. We'll see you. Do it, Sammy. Not yet. Now.
10: Run out of ideas, and the strong ones are reduced to tears. What do we learn after all these years? A change will always come when the empire starts to crumble and fall, and that big white flag hangs above the wall. What do we learn after all these years? A change will always come. Yeah, what do we learn after all these years? A change will always come. And it feels like years we since we've seen the sun. The flowers will bloom on the first of spring. And the butterflies spread its new wings When the jailbird starts up to show remorse and swears his life is on a different course. What have we learned after all these years? A change will always come. Hey. Starts to grumble and moan about how she ain't treated like a home sweet home. What do we learn after all these years? A change'll always come when the last shot misses from a hunter's gun. Ain't it kind of funny when he turns and runs? What do we learn after all these years? A change'll always come. Yeah, what do we learn after all these years? A change'll always come. Like the rivers
11: and flames, and the whole dumb world sort of looks the same. Hang in there, cause a
10: change is gonna come. pretty will be singing in the rain. When the peasant sleeps in a football bed, and the king has no place to lay his severed head, what do we learn after all these years? A change will always come. Change will